You are listening to American Songcatcher, tracing the roots of American music from its cultured past to today's artists playing it forward. I'm folk songwriter Nicholas Edward Williams. Hey everyone, a uh, quick note. I just wanted to share how grateful I am to be getting so much positive feedback and anticipation about this show. And the time between the releases has been spaced out for a few reasons, and I wanted to let you know why. First, I'm a brand new dad, and spending time with my wife and my beautiful son in this very early sacred stage is a top priority of mine. And secondly, each episode requires more than 30 hours of research, story building, soundbite harvesting, recording, and promotion. Your support has been absolutely massive for me and my family, uh, since normally I'd be out touring, and this side project that was born out of COVID has kind of become my main gig. And I'm lucky to have a gracious group of people supporting on Patreon. So if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider joining to help keep this afloat. You can go to patreon.com slash American Songcatcher. And I'm making it a goal to get 100 new patrons at the $5 level by the end of September. So that could be you. Thank you so much for listening. Here's the show. Like many classic folk songs, The House of the Rising Sun, or Rising Sun Blues, and its origin is shrouded in both myth and mystery. The first lyrical publishing and recordings in America dates back to the early 1900s, sprung from the mountains of North Carolina. However, there is evidence that suggests that the song can be traced hundreds of years earlier, back to England. Some musicologists say that it could be based on the broadside ballad tradition. This was a type of ballad that was most popular between the 16th and 19th century in the UK and North America, which commonly talked about love, religion, legends, and drinking. The broadsheet, or broadside, was somewhat of an early newspaper, primitively printed with an early printing press onto a single piece of paper and sold by street vendors. Some only included the lyrics, leaving the melody and accompaniment subject to anybody's perspective although particular musical patterns did emerge, like in the song Greensleeves, for example. Others, in addition to the lyrics, also contained early journalism on politics, disasters, prodigies, and sometimes woodcut illustrations. This was one of the most important mediums in which traditional and contemporary music was learned and orally passed around. The House of the Rising Sun, or Rising Sun Blues, bears some melodic and structural resemblance to The Unfortunate Rake, which was a 16th century folk song that grieves a young man who is dying of syphilis. Over time, there's been many lyrical variations about the fate of young soldiers, sailors, cowboys, or maids, all who seem to pass away too early. The famed ethnomusicologist and folklorist Alan Lomax has said that the term rising sun was used to describe a bowdy house, or brothel, in some old English songs and it was also a name for English pubs at one point. He also said that the melody might have come from a 17th century folk song called Lord Bernard and Little Musgrave, better known today in America as Matty Groves. Lomax suggested that perhaps the location of the house had been moved from England to New Orleans by white Southern performers when the song made its way around the South. 
The oldest publishing of the song's lyrics came from Robert Winslow Gordon in 1925, when he was writing for a column called Old Songs That Men Have Sung in Adventure Magazine. You may remember Robert from episode 2, when he was the first head of the Archive of Folk Songs with the Library of Congress, and worked directly with Bascom Lamar Lunsford. The oldest known recording of the song is by Appalachian artists Clarence Tom Ashley and Gwyn Foster in 1933 under the title Rising Sun Blues. It's played in an old-time waltz rhythm, with Clarence on vocals and guitar and Foster accompanying on harmonica. Clarence said that he learned it from his grandfather, who learned it from his elders, indicating that the song's origin is likely generations older than the early 1900s. Musicians and sociologists can now study American folk songs that have never been transcribed and would otherwise be lost if the library officials did not go into the field to record unknown primitive singers. Alan Lomax, along with his father John, was a pioneer of song preservation. He was tasked by the Library of Congress in the 1930s and 1940s to travel all over the world and collect songs, especially in southern Appalachia. His mission, as he once said, was to put neglected cultures and silenced people into the communications chain. One day in 1937, he arrived in the mountains of eastern Kentucky in a town called Middlesboro with his wife. He set up his bulky recording equipment, which was called a Presto Reproducer, a monstrous four feet high and several hundred pound machine inside the house of a local singer and activist who was hosting. In walked Georgia Turner, the 16-year-old daughter of a local coal miner, along with her mother. With a mature nasal draw, akin to true Southern quality. Without accompaniment, she sang her favorite song called Rising Sun Blues. My mother, she's a tailor. She's so... The locals knew that the song was dated. They just had no idea how old. Georgia wasn't known to travel at all. And considering the history of the area, there are a few clues as to where she learned it. Middlesboro is quite isolated nestled tightly in rugged mountains, nearly 50 miles from the interstate. The town lies just west of the Cumberland Gap, where many English iron ore speculators traveled through in the 18th and 19th centuries. Even before that, there were mountaineers of English, Scottish, and Irish descent, including some with the last name Turner, who started lives in those mountains. George's version of the song became the standard. In 1941, Lomax put that version into a songbook called Our Singing Country, which made its way to New York City's famous folk music scene. There, it fell into the hands of Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, Leadbelly, and Josh White, among many others, who all put their own spin on the song through phonograph recording, which passed it on to many, many more who would interpret the song differently. Consider the first two recordings of this song. You have Clarence from Tennessee, and Georgia from Kentucky. Both come from the Appalachian region, though they're over 100 miles and three mountain ranges apart, which would be quite a distance to travel anytime before or during the 1930s. The luxury of record players and radios fell into the hands of those that could afford them, as did automobiles, which were not common, and there were no highways. Yet somehow, both of their versions sound surprisingly similar. Now how could this be? 
A writer named Ted Anthony wrote a book on the song called Chasing the Rising Sun. His quest to find its true origin takes him to a dozen states and across the Atlantic Ocean to the UK. What he discovered was that Rising Sun Blues was a part of a larger story that involved folk music spreading across vast areas. He described several different ways that songs could move across the isolation of small towns where people lived their entire lives and died as obscure folk singers. For instance, Clarence Tom Ashley took part in traveling medicine shows throughout Appalachia in the 1920s. From town to town, musicians would perform and entertain and draw crowds. Then salesmen would slide in and sell medicine, which oftentimes was just a variety of bottled, flavored alcohol. Medicine shows were key to the spread of folk songs, and it's possible that Clarence, as well as others, could have performed Rising Sun Blues across a number of towns throughout Appalachia. Folks who sang or played music would remember and or reimagine the lyrics and melody until they became something different, yet similar. There is a house in New Orleans. Now, why all the versions that came from Appalachia tell of a life gone wrong in the Big Easy is unknown. The narrative has changed back and forth between sexes, and the earliest version from Gordon's column is about a woman's warning. Clarence Ashley's version is about a male rounder, a gambler. Many locations have been claimed as an inspiration for the Rising Sun Blues in New Orleans. It's not clear whether there was or still is an actual house, as it says in the lyrics, or if it's a metaphor. Some believe the House of the Rising Sun could be a jailhouse, where theoretically someone would be among the first to see the sunrise each day. And there's some evidence to support that, with lyrics mentioning a ball and chain, although that could also be used to refer to marriage. Another belief is that the House of the Rising Sun was a place where prostitutes were sent while being treated for syphilis. New Orleans history shows that there's three potential leads to the original lyrics. The first was a small, short-lived hotel with ties to prostitution called Rising Sun in the French Quarter that burned down in 1822. The second was called Rising Sun Hall, listed in the late 19th century as a building which seems to have been used for meetings, social aid, and a pleasure club, commonly rented out for dances and functions. And the third was the Rising Sun from the 1860s, advertised as a restaurant, a lager beer salon, and a coffee house. There's even a bit of tourism around the legend. A guidebook called Bizarre New Orleans concludes that the real house existed between 1862 and 1874 on Esplanade Avenue and was named after its madame, Marianne Le Soleil Levant, whose surname means the Rising Sun in French though the building doesn't exist anymore. Offbeat New Orleans, another guidebook, claims that the House of the Rising Sun was on St. Louis Street between those same years under the same madam, though the building still stands today. And additionally, there's a bed and breakfast called the House of the Rising Sun that's been decorated in brothel style. Its owners like the song, but there's no connection that's been made with the original house, if it ever existed. Go fill the glasses to the brim. This song has been recorded by Roy Acuff, Woody Guthrie, Lead Belly, Pete Seeker, Joan Baez, Nina Simone, Dave Von Ronk, Bob Dylan, Dolly Parton, Doc Watson, and Jerry Garcia. None have rivaled in popularity, however, 
to the version by the English rhythm and blues rock band, The Animals. The group first heard House of the Rising Sun from Bob Dylan and Josh White when the band was just forming, and it lived on the back burner for some time. While they were on tour with Chuck Berry, it was typical at the time to use the encore as a chance to rock out. Since they couldn't out-rock Chuck Berry, they tried their own version of the song as their closer. The audience's reaction was overwhelming. And later, between tour stops, the group went into a small recording studio in London to capture it, all in one take. That version remains the most commercially successful. It was a number one hit in the UK, the United States, and France. It's been described as the first folk rock hit and has remained the animal's most popular single. It is likely one of the most recorded songs in history. So here's my take based on Doc Watson's version of House of the Rising Sun, which he learned from Clarence Tom Ashley, who first recorded it in 
and it's been a ruin. Many purples on me. Oh God, I'm one. Oh God, I'm one. On me. Over 35 years before Clarence Tom Ashley recorded Rising Sun Blues, 400 miles away in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Elizabeth Bessie Smith was born into the Jim Crow era. The exact year of birth has been speculated, as Negro birth records were less accounted for by the State Department in this time period. Claims vary between 1892 and 1898, though the 1900 census, with information provided by her mother, indicates that Bessie was brought into the world in 1892 as one of seven children. Her father was a Baptist minister and a hard laborer who died soon after Bessie was born, leaving her mother to care for Bessie and her six siblings. By the time Bessie was nine, her brother Bud and her mother also passed away, and her older sister, Viola, only a teenager, was left to raise the group of children. Without parents, Bessie said that she experienced a wretched childhood. The entire family lived in a small one-room shack. Her sister was cruel, and her education was limited as she only completed eighth grade. Bessie loved singing though, and she needed to do her part to earn some income for the family's impoverished household. She had an unusual voice for her age, and Bessie, along with her younger brother Andrew, would busk around Chattanooga. They'd find street corners and perform for pennies as Bessie danced and sang to Andrew's guitar accompaniment. They had a favorite spot right outside of the White Elephant Saloon on the corner of 13th and Elm Street which at the time was the heart of Chattanooga's African-American community. I was the father of 12 little pickaninnies. What do you think that means? That means that things are looking very black for me. <laughs> Around 1904, Bessie's oldest brother, Clarence, ran off without telling Bessie to join Moses Stokes' traveling minstrel show as a comedian and dancer. These were often a group of vaudeville performers that also featured magicians, acrobats, trained animals, jugglers, and singers. It was later said by Clarence's wife that if Bessie had been old enough, she would have gone with him. That's why he left without telling her, because she was ready, even then. When I last night had a good big fight, everything seemed to go around. In 1912, eight years later, Clarence returned to Chattanooga. Bessie had grown up quite a bit since he left. By then she was 18 years old, nearly six feet tall, and weighed close to 200 pounds, and her voice and presence had grown immensely. He arranged an audition for Bessie to be part of the show. She was quickly hired as a dancer, and soon her vocal talents were discovered, and she started singing in the chorus until she became a featured vocalist. While she was with the Traveling Minstrel Show, Bessie met the popular blues singer Gertrude Ma Rainey, who, aside from her voice, was best known for adorning herself with costume jewelry and outrageous outfits. Her most famous accessory was a necklace made out of gold coins that she wore to bed so it wouldn't get stolen. Ma invited Bessie to join the Rabbit Foot Minstrels and became both a mentor and a mother of sorts to her, greatly influencing and galvanizing Bessie's showmanship, 
less on vocals since Bessie's style was already established by the time that they met. Bessie stayed with that show until around 1914, eventually signing on as a singer and dancer in Park's Big Review at the Dixie Theater in Atlanta. She also performed on circuits put on by the Theater Owners Booking Association, primarily for African Americans, and became one of its major attractions. I've been blue all day. For several years, Bessie traveled throughout the South, singing in tent shows, bars, and theaters, and small towns in bigger cities, such as Birmingham, Memphis, Atlanta, and Savannah. Her interpretations of favorite blues songs were innovative at the time, with a combination of great projection and a unique style of bridging the gaps between the major and minor notes with a kind of blue half note. Not only that, but her performances were hypnotizing. She was a larger-than-life figure with a full-throated, elegant contralto voice that punctuated each delivery, coupled with polished dancing and a natural flair for comedy. If she was on stage, all eyes were on her. From the very beginning, communication with her audience was Bessie's hallmark, and by 1918, she had the opportunity to star in her own show in Atlanta, called The Liberty Bells Review, a showcase featuring her talents of singing, dancing, and her impersonations of male singers. Over the next few years, news of Bessie's performances began to spread into the Northeast, just around the time when Prohibition began to create speakeasies, where whites and blacks drank bootleg liquor, and where jazz and blues music thrived. In 1920, a defining moment happened for many African-American artists when Mammy Smith's song, Crazy Blues, hit sales of over 75,000 copies in just one month. Not only did this show record labels that there was a new market, but the single launched a new era for blues in the music business, and more specifically, for female African-American blues singers. Up until then, the recording industry had mostly turned away female leads and was not promoting any music to black people. But the success of Crazy Blues led talent scouts on a search for female blues singers, a trend that lasted through the end of the 20s. Because of this new market, race records were born. They were shipped directly to the South and certain areas of the North, where larger groups of African Americans lived. Look what the sun has done to me. Around this time, Bessie got married to a man named Earl Love, who came from a wealthy Southern family. Details about the couple's meeting and the marriage is sparse, just that they married around 1920 and that Earl passed away soon afterwards. The following year, Bessie's popularity increased to the point where she decided to move to Philadelphia. Despite the buzz, Bessie was denied contracts after auditioning for both OK and Black Swan Records for sounding too rough, though Bessie felt like it was actually because she was too black. At the time, light-skinned African Americans had more options and opportunities in show business because they looked more white. Even though Bessie was extremely talented, she was frequently overlooked for not being light-skinned enough. In 1922, while she was working a residency at Horace Cabaret in Philadelphia, Bessie fell in love with Jack Gee, who was the night watchman. On their first date, Jack got into an altercation with someone and ended up in the hospital with a gunshot wound. Bessie came and saw him every day for five weeks, and when he was released, they moved in together. Frank Walker, a talent agent who had seen Bessie perform years earlier, was hoping to capitalize on this new market and asked her to come to New York and audition for Columbia Records on the race label. 
Her boyfriend Jack pawned his watch and uniform so that Bessie could buy a red dress to wear for her first recording session. She arrived at the studio with her friend and now legendary pianist and composer Clarence Williams on February 15, 1923. Bessie sang into a giant horn, totally acoustic with no microphone, so the volume depended entirely on the strength of the singer's voice. She was extremely nervous, and after 11 takes in that first session, Walker sent her home and asked her to come back the next day and try again. It only took three attempts on the second day for Bessie to lay down her first side, downhearted blues, then Gulf Coast blues. When they released in June, both sides were instant hits, selling an astounding 780,000 copies in the first six months. Three more hit songs followed before the end of the year, all issued on Columbia's regular A-series, Aggravatin' Papa, Beale Street Mama, and Baby Won't You Please Come Home, establishing the singer as one of the top blues acts in the country. And when that first record was released, Jack and Bessie were married by Reverend C.A. Tinley, who actually wrote the song We Shall Overcome, the civil rights movement anthem that was used over 40 years later. Downhearted Blues was the best-selling blues record of its time, and Columbia extended Bessie's contract from one year to eight years. As the popularity of her songs grew, so did her touring schedule. Clarence, her brother and business manager, gave Bessie the idea to buy a custom-built railroad car for her traveling troupe to tour and sleep in. The car was quite luxurious for the time. It was two stories, had a full kitchen, four bedrooms, and a bathroom. This allowed her to bypass some of the racism that was found in both the northern and southern states, where blacks weren't allowed to stay at hotels. She toured with her own tent show called the Harlem Frolics, sometimes featuring as many as 40 troopers, scheduled and supported by the Theater Owners Booking Association. By the end of the 1920s, Bessie was the highest paid black performer of the era. At one point, her weekly salary was as high as $2,000, which is the equivalent of $27,000 today. People lined up for hours to buy tickets to her shows, and near riots frequently erupted when Bessie appeared on stage, and the audience often refused to leave, shouting for encore after encore. She wore decorative costumes with headdresses, fringed shawls and bedazzled dresses, and jeweled caps. She was one of the very first divas in every sense, heralded as the Empress of the Blues. On January 14, 1925, Bessie was asked to record with Louis Armstrong at Columbia's New York studio. With Louis on cornet, they laid down a rendition of W.C. Handy's St. Louis Blues, which to this day is considered the gold standard for that song. They also recorded other classics, including Cold and Hand Blues and I Ain't Gonna Play No Second Fiddle. This propelled Bessie into regular collaborations with the top blues and jazz musicians of the day. Later that year, Bessie returned to her hometown of Chattanooga for her first performance since going big time at the Liberty Theater. At the after party, a drunk man grabbed the arm of Bessie's niece, Ruby, forcing her to dance with him, and Bessie got up and punched him. They thought he'd left, and when Bessie and the girls headed out several hours later, he came around the corner and stabbed Bessie in the stomach with a long dagger. Ruby said that Bessie chased the man for about three blocks before collapsing with the dagger still in her. An ambulance rushed her to the hospital, where the doctors requested that she stay for a few days. She refused to miss her show later that day, and gave the staff so much grief that they let her go, just ten hours after she'd been stabbed. <laughs> 
Despite her commercial success, Bessie's personal life was in turmoil. Her colorful personality and lifestyle led to self-destructive tendencies that's often associated with successful musicians. She had a violent temper, she drank constantly, and frequently engaged in casual sex with both men and women inside and outside of sex clubs, also called buffets. She got into fistfights and brawls, sometimes with her husband Jack, who was constantly spying on her. The couple was a regular source of tension for the troop while they were traveling. She had soft spots too. One of Bessie's ex-chorus girls had a son named Snooks. And because they were in a hard place, Bessie often told her that if it was ever too much, that she would take care of him. Bessie visited whenever she was in Macon, Georgia, showering him with gifts and affection. And when Snooks was six, it became too much for the woman. And Bessie adopted him and renamed him Jack Jr. She moved him up to Philadelphia, where he lived with her sisters while Bessie traveled. A lot of her happiness was reserved for this child, though Jack Sr. didn't show interest in the boy at all, as he already had an unhealthy amount of contempt for her sisters and family, who were the primary beneficiaries of Bessie's wealth. Bessie Smith broke boundaries, even by the Roaring Twenties standards. Her music and lyrics stress independence, fearlessness, sexual freedom, all while asserting with her demeanor that working-class women did not have to be well-behaved to command respect. 1929 specifically started a few difficult years for Bessie, for both personal and professional reasons. Jack had affairs of his own, including with one of Bessie's chorus girls. When she found out, she arranged for Jack to meet her at the station for a show in Ozark, Alabama. When her rail car arrived, she pulled out a gun and began shooting, just missing Jack by inches as he ran away. Later, Jack would discover that Bessie was having affairs with women for the first time and threatened to kill her while she locked herself in a hotel room. And despite all of this, they still found ways to come back together, somehow. My man me Jack had a gambling problem, and one day he convinced Bessie to give him $3,000 so that he could start a new traveling show for her called Steamboat Days. Bessie was in the dressing room before a show in Cincinnati, and while she was reading the Amsterdam news, she saw this story about a new show with a beautiful, light-skinned, up-and-coming blues singer named Gertrude Saunders called Steamboat Days. Jack was having an affair with her. Bessie's niece, Ruby, said it was the only time that she ever saw her cry. The couple finally separated in 1929. To cause further harm, Jack took the two closest people in Bessie's life away from her. Ruby, who was Bessie's best friend and Jack's niece, and her adopted son. Jack had kidnapped him, then falsely reported Bessie to the Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Children, and she lost custody. It took several years before Jack Jr. was reunited again with Bessie, which brought her restored happiness. That same year, she recorded what may be her most popular hit, Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out, written by Jimmy Cox six years earlier, paralleling her life, as well as the stock market crash that would come just two weeks later. Once I lived a life of a millionaire. Perhaps the only upshot of the year, besides that hit, was that Bessie was selected to star in a short film called St. Louis Blues, a follow-up to the success of her recording with Louis Armstrong. Short films were played right before feature-length films at the time, and the storyline was strangely similar to her real life. It features a love triangle between Bessie's character and a thinner, prettier, lighter-skinned black woman 
who has an affair with Bessie's boyfriend. Bessie catches them together, and after her boyfriend chooses the other woman, she then sings an a cappella version of My Man's Got a Heart Like a Rock in the Sea before launching right into St. Louis Blues while standing against a bar with a glass of whiskey by her side while an epic chorus lifts the song behind her. It was Bessie's only film appearance and is the only footage of her singing. When the Great Depression hit, the addition of talking pictures, now using sound and film, indicated the beginning of the end for the vaudeville shows, all of which nearly put the recording industry out of business. Because of this, many female blues singers were making the transition out of the circuit and into both Broadway and Hollywood. Again, those with lighter skin were more desirable for these roles, and even though she was considered the most talented blues singer of that time, Bessie wasn't able to make this crossover. Record sales had slowed considerably, and she had to rely entirely on shows in order to make ends meet. Vaudeville theaters, her bread and butter, were closing all over the country. Her weekly salary evaporated when the Theater Owners Booking Association folded, and she had to book her own shows. The towns that she was able to play in had much smaller, lower-quality theaters, and ticket sales became so rough that Bessie was forced to sell her railroad car and let go most of her troupe. In 1930, Bessie reunited with one of her old friends from Chicago named Richard Morgan, who was a bootlegger, one of the only occupations that still provided decent money, and they started a relationship. The next year, in 1931, Bessie recorded Safety Mama and Need a Little Sugar in My Bowl, which would be her last under Columbia Records. After nine years, 160 songs, and hundreds of thousands of records sold, Columbia decided to terminate the contract. And because of a royalty clause, Bessie only received a small fraction of the money that she deserved for the 15 hits that she provided the company. You, my man, you so nice and brown, sweetest man in this town. Around this time, the country's musical tastes began to shift towards jazz and swing music, with blues taking a back seat. In 1933, Bessie approached OK Records, who had ironically been acquired by Columbia Records, and who turned her down a decade earlier and recorded four sides. She was paid a non-royalty sum of $37.50 for each side, and these were her last recordings. They briefly indicate the transformation that she was making from the Empress of the Blues into something that fit the swing era. She had revamped her look, donning elegant and evening gowns instead of her usual decorative outfits. By all indicators, Bessie was preparing for a comeback. On September 26, 1937, Bessie and Richard were traveling to Memphis for an engagement with Winstead's Broadway Rastus show. It was around 3 a.m. Richard was driving on Route 61 and didn't see a truck that was parked on the shoulder with its lights off. He crashed into it. Their car rolled over and it crushed Bessie's left arm and ribs. It's unknown exactly why, but she didn't reach the hospital, which was a mile away from the accident until seven hours afterwards. By the time that she was taken by an ambulance, her injuries internally and externally were too great, and she never regained consciousness. She died that day at 43 years old. 
Over 10,000 mourners would pay their respects and walk past her coffin a week later in Philadelphia. And for some reason, her grave was unmarked for decades until a tombstone was erected on August 7, 1970, paid for by Juanita Green, who had done housework for Bessie, and Janis Joplin, who cited Bessie as one of her greatest influences. Bessie Smith was a bold, extremely confident woman whose art expressed the frustrations and hopes of many generations of black Americans to come. She's been heralded as the first complete jazz singer, influencing Billie Holiday, Nina Simone, Mahalia Jackson, and decades of jazz and blues singers that are still coming into their own today. Her recordings were inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame for qualitative and historical significance. She was placed in the Blues Hall of Fame for its inaugural class in 1980 and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989. The Bessie Smith Cultural Center, located in an area of Chattanooga that was once known as the Black Enterprise Zone, was opened in 1983 to preserve and celebrate African-American history and culture in the city through art, research, entertainment, and education, continuing her legacy. Here's my rendition of Bessie Smith's classic version of an early blues standard called Taint Nobody's Business If I Do, first recorded by Anna Myers in 1922. If I do 
Around the same time that Bessie Smith was born, nearly 300 miles away next to the Virginia-Tennessee border under Clinch Mountain, Alvin Pleasant, better known as A.P. Carter, came into the world on December 15, 1891. Growing up in the foothill country in an area called Poor Valley, A.P. was the oldest of eight children to a Methodist family of farmers and musicians who all lived in a tiny log cabin. His father was a gospel singer and a well-respected banjo player before A.P. was born though he gave up the instrument altogether, in addition to many of his worldly ways to appease his new wife's religious views. A.P.'s mother often sang ballads passed through her family, and his uncle had a traveling singing school for local churches, and he taught A.P. how to read music. A.P. had a unique vibrato in his voice, and a shake in his hands due to being born with a kind of palsy, which his mother attributed to a near lightning strike two months before he was born. He sang bass in the church choir, a quartet with two uncles and a sister, and he played fiddle. AP was reserved, imaginative, and restless, with a tendency to wander. He held an array of jobs, including as a carpenter, a farmer, a foundry man, sawmill operator, and a storekeeper. When AP was about 20, he traveled to Richmond, Indiana, to take a railroad job, hoping to earn enough money to buy a piece of land back home. It was there that he started composing songs, as a way of coping with homesickness. Around 1911, that sickness turned into typhoid fever, and he returned to Poor Valley, broke, and he started working as a traveling salesman for his uncle, selling fruit trees. Sarah Carter, maiden name Doherty, was born in 1898 near Copper Creek, Virginia, north of Clinch Mountain, near the Kentucky border. After her mother passed away in 1901, she and her sister lived with her aunt and uncle on the Baptist side of the mountain, where it's said that people danced. As a kid, she was nicknamed Jake and was interested in music early on in life. She became fond of the auto harp, an instrument her neighbor played that's held in the lap or to the chest, providing simple accompaniment with little skill necessary. By the time Sarah was 12 years old, she sold enough greeting cards to buy herself one, ordering it out of the Sears catalog. As a teenager, she learned to accompany herself on guitar and banjo as well. It was said that Sarah's voice was so striking and moved people so much that they'd give her money on the spot, which was not common in those times. One day, a man from the other side of Clinch Mountain stumbled into view of Sarah singing a song called Engine 143 outside of her home. He swooned, and after introducing himself as a traveling fruit tree salesman, Sarah told him that she was selling dishes. He told her that if she came with him, he would take the entire set. Sarah didn't care for him at first, though she liked the way that he sang. A.P. Carter would grow on her, making the day-long walk over two ridges, a river, and six creeks for a full year before she agreed to marry him, a month before her 17th birthday in June of 1915. The young couple moved into a two-room cabin with an earthen floor and their primary source of income came from working together, logging timber for paper mills, blacksmithing, carpentry, and nursery sales. Over the next several years, they played informally, often at local churches and sometimes at conventions, where people from the county got together and sang spiritual music. In early 1926, 
AP and Sarah auditioned as a duo for the nearby Brunswick Record Company, but were passed over because Sarah, not AP, was the lead singer. They were told that groups with female leads would not sell records. They liked AP as a fiddler, though, and asked if he would consider working with them, but he wasn't swayed. He felt like his talent was singing and song collecting, so he declined. Additionally, people in Poor Valley had been calling the fiddle the devil's box, and he refused to record with it for the rest of his days. Maybelle Carter, maiden name Addington, was born on May 10, 1909, in Copper Creek, Virginia. She was one of ten children to a farmer and a banjo-playing mother, who taught them a variety of ballads and traditional Appalachian songs passed on through generations of family. Maybelle was already singing and playing the auto harp as a young child with her siblings, entertaining guests and performing at local gatherings. She learned the banjo from her mother, and by the time she was 12, won first prize at the Copper Creek Banjo Contest. At 13, her brothers got her a guitar from the Sears catalog, and she later said that there weren't many guitar pickers around, as it was a unique instrument to the mountains back then. Maybelle joined her brother's band and played guitar at square dances that sometimes lasted until dawn. Maybelle did find a mentor, a local African-American musician named Leslie Riddle, who you're hearing right now. He showed her variations of folk and blues guitar, and building off of what he taught her, Maybelle developed her own style of playing, picking the melody on the bass strings while her other fingers kept rhythm by brushing along the higher ones, a technique that would eventually become known as the famous Carter Scratch, or the Carter Lick. Still a teenager, she would visit her older cousin, Sarah, an AP, and the three of them developed a synergy, eventually putting on casual performances at the local schoolhouse in Mesa Spring. At one of those shows, Maybelle met Ezra, or Eck, Carter, AP's younger brother, who was a well-paid mail clerk for the railroad, and the first person in the valley to own a car. When she was 17, they went to Bristol and eloped, then settled in Mesa Spring, not far from Sarah. By 1927, the two women had built a unique musical harmony, starting from their younger days on into the years spent together while their husbands were away at work. Maybelle was performing regularly on guitar and backing vocals with Sarah, who sang lead and played auto harp. AP sang bass, collected and arranged songs, and took to managing the group's performances. or the Victor talking machine, and they give you double value for your money, plain as daylight. The music also in 1927, the Victor Talking Machine Company had a growing interest in expanding the musical horizons of its recordings so that they could sell more of their record players. These were wind-up phonographs called Victrolas, bought for as little as $50 in the mid-1920s or about $740 in today's money. The company put out ads in newspapers around the country where they would set up mobile recording stations to discover what popular music was happening in different areas. AP saw the ad in Bristol's newspaper, the Victor Co. will have a recording machine in Bristol for 10 days, beginning Monday, to record records. Oh, give to me a winding stream, it must not be too wide. AP was determined to make a living from music, and he convinced the girls of the opportunity at hand. He just needed an automobile to get them there. There was only one option, a Model T, and his brother Eck was reluctant to let him borrow it. AP pleaded until they made an agreement that he would hoe the weeds out of ex-corn patch for two days as a trade-off. On July 31st, they made the day-long 26-mile drive through the foothills on rocky roads where the thin tires burst, then the puncture patches would melt 
in the humid summer heat. To boot, Maybelle was eight months pregnant, and Sarah brought her oldest child, Gladys, who was eight, and her baby, Joe, who was still nursing. They made it to AP's sisters near Bristol, whose husband also planned to audition, and the next day they headed into town to join the people waiting outside of the warehouse. On August 1st and 2nd, 1927, the Carter family went up a flight of stairs into a makeshift studio where the walls were padded with quilts, the microphone hung from the ceiling, and a system of weights and pulleys was powering the turntable recorder. They didn't know it, but that moment would eventually be dubbed the single most important event in the history of country music. Ralph Peer, the producer for Victor, years later said of his first impression, they wandered in, he's dressed in overalls, and the women are country women from way back there. They looked like hillbillies. But as soon as I heard Sarah's voice, that was it. Their very first recording that day was Bury Me Under the Weeping Willow, an old folk tune that AP changed around to fit the group's style. Sarah would nurse between songs, and Gladys watched the baby while they recorded. Sarah and Mabel did most of the picking and singing, while AP occasionally joined in on harmony for their signature sparse yet elegant arrangements. After the sessions, they received $300 total, $50 per song, as well as 1.5% of the royalties if they were commercially viable, then turned around for the long voyage home. Truth be told, at the time, Ralph Peer, while he enjoyed the trio, still had reservations about female lead singers and was dumbfounded by AP, who would just leave a song mid-verse and wander. Maybell once said that, we just let him sing when he got ready. He was fixing a flat tire and missed the second session entirely when Maybell and Sarah performed Single Girl, Married Girl. At the time, it was unusual to drop in and out of three-part and two-part harmony during a verse or a chorus, or to duplicate a melody in unison as the Carters did. AP may have just been wondering, or perhaps it was intentional. The first compilation of recordings from artists at the Bristol Sessions were released as the new orthoponic Victor Southern series in October and featured 11 of the groups, not including the Carter family. In November of that year, either at Piers' insistence or his reluctance, Victor decided to release a double-sided 78 record of the Carter family's wandering boy and poor orphan child from the Bristol Sessions, though the Carters didn't know it was out. It would sell 100,000 copies. Looking to capitalize and get them to star status, Peer offered to manage the group and invited them to a second recording session in Camden, New Jersey the following year, where the hits kept coming and the Carter family was on their way. AP was the second to own a car in Poor Valley, buying a red Chevrolet with his share of the royalty checks. He used it for the group's performances at regional churches and schools, selling tickets for 15 or 25 cents with a small poster that said, the program is morally good. Sarah bought herself a motorbike and Mabel got a Gibson archtop guitar, which she played the rest of her life. Through these commercial recordings, radio appearances and concerts, the Carter family amassed a reputation as one of the most influential acts in hillbilly music eventually called country music. Between 1928 and 1929, the record sales were second only to Jimmy Rogers. Though they kept their humble lives, and aside from performances, they distanced themselves from show business. It never even occurred to them to stop working their normal jobs. Since Eck and AP were still traveling, 
During the day, Maybell and Sarah would weed corn patches, milk the cows, feed the hogs, gather eggs, can vegetables, churn butter, wash clothes, cook meals, and anything else needed on the farm. Then, some evenings, they'd put on their Sunday best and play shows while their relatives watched the children. Involved in suffering from the worldwide depression and the deficits in governmental budgets that result therefrom. The economic load most This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. In the spring of 1929, the Carters were invited back to Camden for their third recording session. They were again paid $50 per song, plus the royalties for songs that they could copyright. Later that year, on October 29th, the stock market crashed on Black Tuesday. These sudden financial losses led to an economic recession, widespread unemployment, and the country entered into the era known as the Great Depression. Still, by the end of 1930, the Carter family had sold over 700,000 records in the U.S. and were steadily gaining popularity. Far away on the hill to a sunny mountainside. AP realized that each song that he collected and copyrighted meant that there was money to be made. He was still working as a traveling salesman, and since Poor Valley is less than 25 miles from Tennessee, North Carolina, Kentucky, and West Virginia state lines, he was constantly in search to catch whatever music that he could. He went all over rural Appalachia and attended church services in many small towns, where he found much of the Carter family's spiritual recordings. Oftentimes on these travels, his friend Leslie Riddle, the African-American musician who mentored Maybell on guitar, would accompany him. Leslie was crucial in the collection of the songs, especially the melodies. AP would write down the lyrics while Leslie memorized the song. Then, since AP could only play fiddle, Leslie would teach the chords and melody to both Sarah and Mabel, working out their rendition together. Leslie was a key part of their success and legacy, though ironically, or perhaps as no surprise, he wouldn't receive recognition for his contributions until the 1960s. Because AP was gone so frequently for long periods of time, and there was so much to be done on the farm and at home, let alone taking care of three children, Sarah was fed up. One day, AP asked his younger brother, Coy, to help Sarah with chores while AP was out. They began having an affair, and they fell in love. When Coy's parents found out, they left Mesa's spring and moved the family to California, where they said that the climate was better for his siblings, who were diagnosed with tuberculosis. After that, Sarah left AP, and she moved back to her aunt and uncles in Copper Creek, and the two were separated. The group was urged to record again by Ralph Peer, and though Sarah initially refused, the Great Depression was in full swing now, so recording and performing was necessary to stay afloat during these hard times. They officially divorced on October 15, 1936, though the two managed to stay professional, now focusing on radio work to make their way. And now here's the Carter family on a good old spiritual... We shall rise. Between 1938 and 1940, the Carter family moved down to Texas each winter season to perform for an hour a day at XERA, an ultra-high-powered radio station on the Mexican border that had a signal ten times more powerful than the U.S. stations were allowed to use. This thrusted them into the living rooms and porches of hundreds of thousands of listeners throughout the United States and overseas. Among them was a teenager in central Alabama named Hank Williams, a young man from Oklahoma named Woody Guthrie, an infant in North Georgia named Norman Blake, and a kid from Arkansas named John R. Cash. Oh, I'm thinking the night of my blue eyes. 
also listening over in California was Koi, AP's cousin. Sarah dedicated the song, I'm Thinking Tonight of My Blue Eyes, to him by name. He soon found out that his mother had been hiding Sarah's letters, and he followed his heart, driving over 1,600 miles to the station. They were married on February 20th in Brackettville, Texas, just days after his arrival. This broke AP. His noticeable, sorrowful voice was upsetting everyone, including listeners, so the radio station sent him back home, leaving Sarah and Maybell to finish those shows alone. They returned for one more season until Mexico and the United States signed a broadcasting treaty that shut the station down. We have met and we are By 1941, the economy was improving, and because of the radio broadcasts, the sales started going back up. In October, they traveled to R.C. Victor's New York studio and recorded 14 songs. Around this time, a cover story about the Carter family was scheduled for a coming issue of Life magazine and a photographer was sent to Mesa Spring where pictures of the Carters were taken. The story would have brought them into the living rooms of mainstream America. However, on December 7th, less than a week before the magazine went to press, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Every magazine and newspaper, understandably, began reporting on the impending war, and the Carter family's story never ran. Regardless, those sessions in New York would be their last, and in March of 1943, after finishing up a contract with WBT Radio in Charlotte, the three original members of the Carter family officially split. You may forever go. Perhaps the most understated influence of the Carter family was that these two modern working women changed the standards for female leads, both vocally and instrumentally, in popular music. Single Girl, Married Girl, in particular, created a conversation for the first time about the concept of being a single girl who could go anywhere she pleases, and a married girl who's got a baby on her knees. The song begged the question of what society expected of women. Both Sarah and Mabel had to juggle the demands of motherhood, work, and performing, knowing firsthand how it all came with some sacrifice. That message, intentional or not, empowered and gave women a voice across the country. I was standing by the window on one cold and cloudy day. After more than 300 recordings, the original Carter family sold approximately 10 million records, though they didn't cross over to the huge audiences of popular network radio, Hollywood films, and big-time vaudeville. Their mark on country music is distinct as flat pickers such as Doc Watson, Clarence White, and Norman Blake all credit Maybell's playing as their inspiration, and their signature harmonies have been a template for decades of artists, even today. The Carter family was the first group to be elected into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1970, nicknamed the first family of country music. In 1988, they were inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame and the International Bluegrass Music Hall of Honor in 2001. They also received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award from the Recording Academy in 2005. First recorded on Victor Records in 1928, Wildwood Flower was originally a parlor song, typically sung by amateurs to amuse guests in middle-class homes between the 1700s and late 1900s. It's a spin-off of another song called All Twine Mid the Ringlets, published in 1860, and the original poem that those lyrics were based off of has been lost. When Wildwood Flower was released, it sold nearly 100,000 copies, 
which was a monumental achievement in the 1920s. Because of this popularity, their version has been the most enduring and is now considered to be a musical standard today. Artists such as Hank Williams, Merle Travis, Gene Ritchie, Joan Baez, and many, many others have either recorded or performed it. It's often cited as one of the most essential songs for advanced guitar players to learn in folk, country, and bluegrass. NPR also added it to the list of the top 100 most important American musical works of the 20th century. Today, nearly 100 years since its first recording, and well over 100 years since it was first written, Wildwood Flower has remained timeless. Here's my version of Wildwood Flower, first recorded in 1928, which I'll admit is a sad attempt at Maybell's famous Carter Scratch. I will twine now and mingle my raven black hair With the roses so red and the lilies so fair And the myrtle so bright with its emerald hue The pale amanita and the hyssop's own blue I will sing and my life shall be gay. I will charm every heart in a crown I was away. And I woke from my dream and my idol was clay. Portions of loving had all flown away. Oh, she taught me to love her and promised to. Cherish me over all others above And my poor heart is wondering No misery can tell She left with no warning No words of farewell Taught me to love you and call me a flower That was blooming to cheer you through life's dreary hour Oh, I long to see her and regret the dark hour She's gone and neglected this pale wild flower Stronger wind than the one that blows down a lonesome railroad line. 
Less than a year after the Carter family split, a thousand miles away in Fort Worth, Texas, a boy named John Towns Van Zant, better known as Towns Van Zant, was born on March 7, 1944. An hour and a half east lies Van Zant County, named after his great-great-grandfather, a diplomat who worked for Sam Houston and represented the Republic of Texas, and passed away while running for governor. Additionally, his great-grandfather was one of the civic leaders who essentially founded Fort Worth, raising it from cow pastures to a transportation hub. His father was a corporate lawyer and an executive for an old company who was transferred to a different city nearly every year throughout Towns' early life, from Texas to Montana to Colorado to the Midwest, among many other places. Although they relocated often, he was a happy-go-lucky and a funny kid, according to his sister, living out a typical middle-class childhood. As a great philosopher once said... On September 9, 1956, 12-year-old Towns watched, along with 60 million other viewers, when Elvis Presley shook his hips, as well as the world, on The Ed Sullivan Show. Towns would later say that he thought that Elvis had all the money in the world, all the Cadillacs and all the girls, and all he did was play the guitar and sing. That made a big impression on me. That Christmas, he asked his father for a guitar, and after promising to learn Fraulein as his first song, he got one, and he practiced constantly while wandering the nearby countryside. Well, don't you take it too bad. When Towns was 14, the Van Zants moved to Boulder, Colorado. He grew fond of the Rocky Mountain state, but before he could savor it, his father was again transferred, this time to Chicago. Wherever they went, Towns seemed to excel in education. Back when he was in grade school, his IQ tested high, which his first wife, Fran, later said was way above 140, and his parents had began grooming him for a future in law and or politics. He loved Shakespeare, and the poetry that he wrote during his early years would evolve into his signature songwriting style many years later. When word from the oil company came in for yet another relocation, Towns' parents knew that this pace was not sustainable. They decided that wherever the next stop was, Towns would have two consecutive years in the same school. The next location was Minnesota, and they sent him off to the all-boys Shattuck School in Faribault. Founded in 1858, this was one of the oldest and most respected college preparatory boarding schools in the country, with a military thread running right through it. Towns wasn't just a good student, he was also a great athlete, a baseball player, competitive wrestler, and a wide receiver on the football team. He was a good-looking, tall, slim guy who carried a guitar around, singing Johnny Cash, Ray Charles, and Gene Vincent tunes, and always pushing the envelope on the dress code. Towns graduated in 1962, and later said that Shattuck offered him a real serious private prep school Ivy-covered education. Well, I've been up from Mississippi. After high school, Towns was accepted into the University of Colorado at Boulder to study law, and his family had moved back to Texas, Houston this time. Like many kids in college, Towns found the bottle and often drank at an almost suicidal pace. One time he claimed that he wanted to know what it was like to fall. So he sat on his fourth floor balcony window during a party and he leaned back slowly until he dropped, luckily and somehow without injury. During the spring of his sophomore year, his parents grew weary of the binge drinking, thinking that it was leading towards suicide and flew to Boulder to bring Towns back to Houston for six months of psychiatric evaluation at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. Doctors diagnosed him as schizophrenic reactionary manic depressive, what would be considered bipolar today, and he received three months of insulin shock therapy, which isn't used for treatment anymore for good reason. 
Though he appeared more normal, it erased much of his long-term memory, and his mother would claim in hindsight that it was her biggest regret in life. Well, I'm going out to Denver See if I can't find in 1965, Towns was accepted into the University of Houston's pre-law program. He joined a fraternity, and his life seemed to get back on track to fulfill his parents' wishes for the future. He still wrote during this period, and his song Fraternity Blues pokes at his first experience at a frat party, with a jug of wine in hand around a room full of preppy boys, drinking whiskey sodas, brandy alexanders, frozen daiquiris, and reciting the Greek alphabet to one another. He passed out and vomited all over the couch and left the fraternity soon after. He grew a bit lost, though he knew that there was one piece missing around this time, left over from his days in Boulder, a girl named Fran Petters. He went back to Colorado to get her, and they were married in August of 1965. That same year, Towns began performing regularly in front of crowds at places like the Gesture Lounge in Houston for $10 per night, eventually getting opportunities to open for artists like blues legend Lightning Hopkins, Jerry Jeff Walker, and Doc Watson. At the time, he played mostly cover songs by Hopkins, who had a large influence on Towns' freeform picking guitar style, as well as Hank Williams and Bob Dylan, who inspired Towns to pursue a music career after hearing The Times They Are Changing. When all other doors were closing for Towns, he quit school and began turning his attention fully to music. In 1966, Towns' father encouraged him to start writing his own songs and stop playing covers. He eased into writing at first with more humorous and novelty songs before infusing his love for poetry and deepening the cavern of his music. He also played the old quarter and he met more Texas songwriters like Blaze Foley and Guy Clark who became his lifelong friends. Driving around in your brand new automobile. Shortly after, Towns' father passed away unexpectedly from a heart attack at the age of 52. In 1967, Towns dropped out of graduate school and began drifting around, mainly to Austin, Texas, where he joined in the late 60s music scene and started using heroin. He tried to join the Air Force during the Vietnam War, but was rejected because of his medical history, labeled as an acute manic depressive who has made minimal adjustments to life. When the Jester Lounge closed, Towns started playing at Sand Mountain Coffee House, and while performing there one night in 1968, another Texas songwriter, Mickey Newberry, saw his talent. Mickey convinced Towns that he belonged with the songwriters in Nashville, and arranged a recording gig with a man who would become his lifelong producer, cowboy Jack Clement, best known for his work with Johnny Cash. Those sessions caught the attention of an independent label that was looking for acts called Poppy Records and the songs were released as Towns' debut album, For the Sake of the Song. The name she gave was Caroline. The next five years were the most prolific for Towns. He recorded five more albums, all released on Poppy, and the songs that he wrote during this period were some of his best. Among them were Tecumseh Valley, To Live Is To Fly, Poncho and Lefty, and If I Needed You, songs of poetry that many years later would give Towns the recognition that he deserved. The last record during this era was the late great Towns Van Zant, eerily adding to the impression from his songs that he didn't expect to live very long. People saw the black gothic letters on the cover and assumed that he was dead. When it released, Towns was living in the woods outside of Nashville in a tin-roofed bare board shack with no heat, plumbing, or telephone, 
occasionally appearing in town to play shows, surviving on raccoon meat. In 1975, Towns was featured in the documentary Heartworn Highways, a film that captured some of the founders of the outlaw country movement, along with Guy Clark, Steve Earle, Gamble Rogers, Charlie Daniels, and David Allen Coe. Towns made his appearance drinking whiskey in the middle of the day and shooting guns at his run-down trailer home in Austin, Texas, speaking off the cuff and performing Waiting Around to Die and Poncho and Lefty. And this is kind of a song about it. In 1977, Live at the Old Quarter, Houston, Texas was released, one of his most acclaimed records, featuring just Towns and his guitar in front of a small, intimate audience. You can hear drinks being set on tables, people coughing, and a few awkward reactions as he slips between the two versions of Towns, one part excitedly telling jokes, then the other muttering a few lackluster words between songs. The next year, after flip-flopping between new management and back to the old, he released Flying Shoes, an album that would start a decade-long drought from studio recordings. Around this time, his fan club grew, and he received hundreds of thousands of letters from around the world, from those who were comforted by Towns' songs while dealing with their own depression. Well, if I needed you, would you come to me? Would you come to me? Starting in the early 80s, a few well-known artists recorded their own version of Towns' compositions, such as Emmylou Harris and Country Music Hall of Famer Don Williams, whose version of If I Needed You hit number three on country charts in 1981. Two years later, Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard took their take on Poncho and Lefty up to a Billboard number one country hit in 1983. This made him enormously famous at one point in his life and brought in a considerable amount of royalty money. Despite these offshoots of fame, Towns continued to tour and perform for small audiences, often for less than 50 people. According to Susanna Clark, who is married to Guy Clark, Towns repeatedly turned down invitations to write for Bob Dylan, who was a big fan of Towns' work and owned all of his records. He kept writing, recording, and performing up until the mid-1990s, though his friends noted that he was withering and growing more and more frail. His voice dropped a lower register, mostly from his drug addiction and alcoholism, though its weathered quality still suited him and came through as a pure expression. Sometimes I don't know where this dirty road is taking me. Around December 20th, 1996, Towns took a fall down the concrete stairs outside of his house and badly injured his hip, forcing him to spend Christmas week on the couch, unable to get up even to use the bathroom. Still, he was determined to finish an album that he was working on and arrived at the Memphis studio in a wheelchair pushed by his road manager just a few days later. The label canceled the sessions because of his obvious pain, as well as Towns' unstable behavior and drunkenness. By the time Towns finally agreed to go to the hospital on December 31st, it had been eight days since he fell, and x-rays showed that he'd fractured his hip. Corrective surgeries ensued, and Janine, his third ex-wife, warned the surgeon that one of Towns' rehab doctors said that if he detoxed, it would kill him. The hospital said that detoxing a late-term alcoholic at home was ill-advised, and he would have a better chance of recovering under their care. Janine checked him out of the hospital against their advice, forfeiting a chance to receive any painkillers or prescriptions. Not more than a few hours after midnight, right after leaving the hospital, Towns had already started showing signs of withdrawal. Janine gave him a flask of vodka and got him back home to Smyrna, Tennessee, where she said that he became lucid in a really good mood, calling his friends. Towns fell asleep after taking four Tylenol PM tabs, and while Janine was talking with Susanna Clark, 
Towns stopped breathing. She attempted CPR, but she couldn't revive him. He died early that morning, on New Year's Day in 1997, of a heart attack, just like his father had at the age of 52. This nine-pound hammer It's a little too heavy Towns was a songwriter's songwriter that never recorded on a major label. He came from wealth, though he despised it, and lived as hard of a life as he could, pushing those around him away, getting married and divorced three times. At many of his shows later in life, Towns was drunk or high on stage, babbling on and sometimes not performing, forgetting his own lyrics, or passing out before the set was done. He battled with multiple forms of addiction, including heroin and alcohol, and was admitted to rehab nearly a dozen times. He once told Janine that the only thing he ever wanted was to write the perfect song that would save somebody's life. Ironically, the only thing that his friends and family wanted was to help him save himself. Towns was inducted into the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame and in 2014 into the Austin City Limits Hall of Fame. Pancho and Lefty tells the story of two outlaws in Mexico, one who is gunned down and one who survives. Towns' story of the song coming to life started with a three-day run of shows in Dallas, Texas. On the same three-day performance schedule in town was the popular evangelical Billy Graham and the spiritual guru, the Maharaji. Graham drew 500,000 Christians, the guru had about 250,000, and Towns claimed to have seven winos from downtown. Because of this huge influx of people into Dallas, there were no hotel rooms available within 50 miles, so Towns headed to the outskirts. The only motel that he could seem to find had no TV, no Coke machine, no phone, dirty rooms and sheets, and a swimming pool with a big crack in it. The second night that he was there, Towns sat down in a chair and told himself that he wasn't going to move until he wrote a song. After about three and a half hours, he said that Poncho and Lefty came in through the window and he started writing appearing out of thin air without understanding what it meant, like so many other songs that he wrote. Here's my take on Towns Van Zant's Poncho and Lefty, first released in 1972. Had many days, they only let him slip away. 
Lefties, I suppose. Now, Lefty, he can't sing the blues all night long like he used to. The dust of Poncho bit down south ended up in Lefty's mouth. The dead in land for Poncho low. Lefty split for Ohio where he got the bread to go. It's quiet, Cleveland's cold, so the story ends, we're told. But Poncho needs your prayers, it's true, and save a few from the day too. He only did what he had to do. Now he's growing old. Not the federal, they say, they could have had him. Towns' career was winding down after his eighth studio album, a young man named Jerron Paxton, better known as Blind Boy Paxton, was brought into the world on January 26, 1989, clear across the country in Los Angeles, California. Jerron's family were sharecroppers that originally hailed from Louisiana and migrated to California in 1956, the same year as the iconic Capitol Records building, shaped like a stack of 45 records, was built. With African-American, Jewish, and a mix of Creole and Choctaw Indian ancestry, Jerron was raised living with his mother, grandparents, and his aunt and uncle without his father around much. They lived in a part of South Central LA that happened to hold the largest Creole and Cajun population outside of Louisiana, as well as around 20,000 Choctaw Indians and four generations of his family lived on the same block. That area is called the Watts District, most famously known for its contributions to both hip hop and R&B, though it also had some of the best blues and jazz bands in the world when he was growing up. As a kid, Jerron watched PBS television programs about classical music, and his grandmother would sing spirituals, blues, Cajun, country blues, and other popular material around the house. She had Jewish heritage that went back to relatives near the Mediterranean Sea. Though most of his family are Baptists, so he was brought up in churches, until his grandmother taught him about Judaism during his mid-teens, and he slowly connected more with that religion. The family often listened to the local blues and jazz station, as well as 70s pop and soul hits, blasting from a large boombox through the house and into the backyard where they gathered on Saturdays. 
They were quite poor, though they didn't need much more than they had. He would garden, hunt, fish, and he learned how to be a good young man growing up around an older crowd. Most of his youth was spent making friends with folks that were born between 1916 and 1945, developing a wide range of knowledge around the music that they lived with in the Deep South. Styles born in the bayous of Louisiana, the Mississippi Delta, the mountains of Arkansas and North Carolina, and the Texas Plains. There were just a few music stores in South Central when he grew up, and folk instruments such as guitars and harmonicas weren't readily available. South Central hadn't had a fiddle contest for over a hundred years, but at 12 years old he was curious enough to ask for one, and his grandmother arranged for him to take lessons at school on Saturdays. Two years later, around the same time that O Brother Rarthau came out, he picked up the banjo and latched on, which musically felt like a much better fit. By 15, he had raised himself on 78 records, with a wide appreciation for songs born between World War II. Some faculty members from his high school recalled that on free dress days, he would come to school wearing overalls, his yarmulke, and always playing a banjo or harmonica. One evening when he was 16, Jerron received a guitar from the relatives of a neighbor who passed away, and things progressed exponentially. His grandmother woke up the next morning and heard him playing a Skip James song. He told the village voice, I had the guitar about 15 hours and had about seven or eight tunes. It felt like something I'd been doing my whole life. Jerron practiced every day and often carried two instruments with him wherever he went, even to his friend's basketball games, where he'd pick tunes along the sidelines. His first gig was at a local arts center, where his grandmother and family danced and sang along to his renditions of Blind Lemon Jefferson, Lightning Hopkins, and many other Piedmont and country bluesmen. That same year, Jerron began to go partially blind. He had peripheral vision problems that only allowed him some sight, suffering from two eye diseases since his early teens. At 17, he was declared legally blind and unable to drive. He said that in some ways it's gotten worse, and occasionally he'll see something that isn't there, but he hasn't lost the ability to pick up his instruments and play. When he was 18, Jerron was leading himself around Santa Monica with a guitar in one hand and a white cane in the other, heading to a cafe that had a piano that was open for anyone to play on, where he could continue developing his newfound ivory skills. He walked in and there was already a man playing that piano, named Kay, who'd been performing ragtime and jazz for the last 40 years. There weren't many people in there, and Kay turned to see a six-foot-two, built-like-a-fridge black teenager in overalls and a washboard tie, grinning and staring right in his direction. Kay eventually asked what type of music Jerron liked to play, to which he replied, Oh, I like them ragtimes. Jerron went into a Blind Blake song called Southern Rag, mesmerizing Kay because he sounded exactly like Blake, and now he realized that he even looked just like him. They began hanging out often, Kay teaching Jerron key components of ragtime on piano, listening to records, talking music history, and playing together. If y'all don't know who I am, y'all are drunk. <laughs> On drugs, or otherwise inebriated. And I want some. Not seeing much of a future for music in Los Angeles, Jerron became the first in his family to attend college, traveling further away from home than he ever had, and moving to upstate New York to accept a scholarship at Marist College. He would skip out on most of the standard educational classes and find his way to the music room to practice stride piano. Eventually, he found ways to get to New York City and started exploring the folk scene there. 
he got an opening spot for the Australian songster C.W. Stone King at the Jalopy Theater in Brooklyn, who he'd been in contact with online for a few years, and he found his community there. Through the Jalopy Folk Network, he soon began playing hootenannies and gigs in and around the Brooklyn area, crossing with other folkies like Hubby Jenkins of the Grammy-winning Carolina Chocolate Drops, founded by Rehannon Giddens and Don Flemons. He dropped out of Marist in 2010 and transferred to the New School for Jazz and Contemporary Music in Greenwich Village, crashing on friends' couches until he got a place of his own. After two semesters, though, he dropped out of New School, where the focus on contemporary work didn't sit as well as the early jazz and blues that he was drawn to. Jerron has said, For me, music is not an academic experiment. I play it the way I feel it, because it should be an expression of how I see things. I'm just learning to have a good time. Around New York City, Jerron was playing piano and six-string banjo in orchestras and hot jazz and 20s jazz bands every chance that he got. Despite his joys of playing with others, Jerron was able to have more financial stability playing solo. He started tinkering with the alias Blind Boy on his MySpace music page, if you remember those days, and his Gmail account, and his folk peers encouraged him to use it until the name stuck. Jerron's solo career began to take off after playing some recognized folk and blues festivals in Washington State and North Carolina. Soon after, he found management with the Road Warrior Agency, specializing in different forms of traditional string music, who he still works with today, as well as Hubby Jenkins, Jim Queskin, and Meredith Axelrod, among many others. It's a good old song called, I wish I was a mole in the ground. Sometimes you ain't what you think you want to be, but that gummit, be satisfied, because you ain't what you don't want to be, and if you ain't what you don't want to be, you don't want to be something you ain't. Things really started picking up by 2014, and Jerron was named artistic director of the Port Townsend Acoustic Blues Workshop and Festival at Centrum in Port Townsend, Washington. In 2016, he was invited to perform at Carnegie Hall for the Lead Belly Tribute, along with Buddy Guy, Edgar Winter, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, and several others. His performance made a huge impression, and garnered him some credibility among these blues leaders, leading to opportunities to open for Buddy Guy, Robert Cray, as well as performances at numerous festivals throughout the U.S. and around the world in Australia, Canada, England, and Ireland. The following year, he was included for the multi-award-winning documentary The American Epic Sessions, following the restoration of the first sound recording machine from 1925 and featuring 20 influential artists who recorded on it for the first time in 80 years and pay homage to old songs. The film was produced by Robert Redford, Jack White, and T-Bone Burnett, and Jerron records an incredible version of the Reverend Gary Davis's Candyman. The following year, he was featured in a full episode on season three of David Holt's State of Music, a PBS series featuring the finest traditional musicians that are alive today. Dinner coming out the harmonica already. Jerron doesn't come across as someone who's just 31 years old, especially on stage. He has an uncanny ability to transport audiences into a world of the past. Not only that, he's an infectious old soul with wit, cultural integrity, music history knowledge, humor, and storytelling. He's a true songster, fluent in ragtime, hokum, old time, French reels, Appalachian mountain music, southern blues, jazz, and more, capable of playing somewhere around two to 3,000 songs. His specialty is compositions written before 1934. And in addition to fiddle, banjo, guitar, piano, and harmonica, he's also added Cajun accordion, ukulele, and the percussive bones to his collection. He's been compared to artists such as Taj Mahal and Keb Moe, and is one of the few African-American banjo players touring today and playing traditional songs of his ancestors. 
When asked by the Bluegrass Situation about whether he sees a place for the music that he performs in black culture today and where he wants the music to go, Jaron explained that, there are very few of us. I'd love to see people of the community value their own folk music. I've noticed black culture is one of the few cultures that hasn't had its folk music presented in a beautiful and proper way. Go to Ireland, Scotland, and even Appalachia and watch how they treat their music. It's everywhere. It's on the radio. It's in your face. And people are educated about the instruments. Everyone has one, and they're easy to get. Jaron added, It's this crazy paradox in that the real black music, the music of protest that's yours and is so foundational to all of American music that influences people as far as the eye can see and is made by a very small, oppressed group of people. And the boys start to get arrested. I can hear those bullets just hurrying through the air. They were singing a little home, sweet home. Here's a rendition of I Ain't Got Nobody, largely inspired by Blind Boy Paxson's take on this classic standard, first published in 1915 and made famous by Louis Prima. There's been a saint that's going round And I begin to think it's true It's awful hard when you love someone If they don't really care about you Now once I had a loving guy The sweetest little thing in town Now she's gone and she, she left me she done turned me down mm-hmm. I ain't got nobody well, No one really cares for me That's why I'm so sad and lonely Somebody come take a chance with me. Singing love songs Honey, old time mm-hmm. If you'd only say Be that sweet girl of mine mm-hmm. Oh, now I Ain't got no Somebody come 
take a chance with me Singing love songs Honey all the time If you'd only say Be that sweet girl of mine I ain't got no Say a man is made out of mud A poor man's made out of muscle and blood Muscle and blood and skin and bones A mind that's weak That's going to do it for episode three. Today's Shine a Light goes out to the folks at Ballad of America. This nonprofit is on a mission to preserve and celebrate music from America's diverse cultural history by teaching American folk songs to children, developing resources for teachers, and promoting group singing events, among other things. You can find the story of the United States in 12 songs, an experience of more than 250 years of American history through the songs of the people who lived it, at balladofamerica.org, as well as more information about their purpose. This episode, as always, was made possible by the community on Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a direct supporter of the show, please visit patreon.com slash americansongcatcher. We would love to have you join on and help this independent program. Huge thanks to the Smithsonian Folkways for all of their crucial work in preserving the legacy of these artists and these songs, the Library of Congress's complete national recording registry, archive.org, and all the effort that they put into transferring cultural artifacts into digital form, and all of the website resources that were used in this episode, which are hyperlinked in the description. Our intro song is Payday by Mississippi John Hurt from the Today album. The outro song is 16 Tons, performed by Tennessee Ernie Ford, originally by Merle Travis. This episode was produced, researched, recorded, and distributed by myself, Nicholas Edward Williams. In the words of Bessie Smith, I don't want no drummer. I set the tempo. Here's to the songs of old. May they live on forever. See you next time on American Songcatcher. If you see me coming, better step aside. A lot of men didn't. A lot of men died. One fist of iron, the other of steel. If the right one don't get you, then the left one will.